I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Five to 10,000 years ago, grapevines made their way up the Danube River as they traveled with groups of people to northern parts of Europe. But during the height of the Roman Empire, Emperor Domitian banned grape growing north of the Alps to protect the Roman wine industry, and European winemaking cooled down. This decree was overturned in the year 280 by Marcus Aurelius Probus, and the wine industry in now Austria ramped up once again. In peacetime, Probus sent his troops north to help clear land for vineyards, including areas along the Danube. Though his decree ended up being great for the ensuing wine industry, in some historic accounts, Probus was killed in a vineyard by angry soldiers who thought their new position as civilian laborers was an unfit appropriation of their skills. Probus wasn't the only famous leader who had trouble among the Danube vines. Richard the Lionhearted, he didn't have such a great time there either. Leopold V, the Duke of Austria, suspected his cousin's death was a result of a planned hit by Richard the Lionhearted. And also during the Crusades, Leopold had been deeply offended when he claimed a title equal to Richard's, but instead of accepting, Richard had Leopold's flag torn down from the ramparts of the captured castle in Acre. Later, when Richard made his way back to England, he tried to pass through Leopold's territory in Vienna, but Leopold had him captured and imprisoned along the Danube in what is today the Wachau at Dernstein Castle. Richard was later moved and released for a large sum of money. But you wonder, did his Dernstein cell have a window and could he see vines outside? Was he given local wine to drink? Today, though you can still see the Dernstein ruins, the Wachau is known for stunning Rieslings and Gruner Veltliners. The soils are varied and range from sand and gravel along the Danube banks to Los a little further up and exposed rock even higher up on the terraced hillsides that rise up along the river. Usually, Gruner Veltliner is planted on the lower banks in the Los, while Riesling is planted on the higher, rockier sites. The Danube winds through hillsides that over centuries have been terraced with stone walls. Many of the walls are several hundred years old. 
The Danube River's wide water surface moderates the day and nighttime temperatures, and the winding of the river helps to create little microclimates here and there. In the 1980s, several growers in the Wachau teamed up to form the Venea Wachau in order to create some quality standards of their own. Basing their standards on alcohol content, they came up with Steinfetter, Fetterspiel, and Smaragd. Steinfetter wines are dry whites under 11.5 ABV. Fetterspiel wines are dry whites 11.5 to 12.5. And Smaragd wines are above 12.5. Smaragd means emerald, and the wines are later harvest wines fermented through to dry. They tend to have a great concentration and complexity. Stay tuned to hear more details from a producer in the Wachau. It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at OffsetPartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T partners with an s.com offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand leo alzinger on the show today hello sir how are you hello Nice to see you. Yeah, thank you. So you are the son of another Leo Alzinger, and you have property in the Wachau of Austria. Yes, my dad's name is also Leo. That's uh, very traditional. And uh, our winery is close to the city of Krems. So it's the first village um, from the east, which belongs to the Wachau. Oh, okay. So in a way, you're pretty close to the Kremstal. Yes, the, it's the neighbor region uh, is the Kremstal. Because in a way, I, I kind of think of your wines having a detail that reminds me of certain Kremstal wines, a certain pointillism. Yes, um, there are also in Kremstal um, some sites which are from the soil structure. Sim there are similarities to Wachau, but altogether you find also more lust-driven soils there. And in the Wachau, you, of course, find also such soils, but uh, not that much. If you have primary rock, it's mainly nice in our region. Then you have a very elegant, straight, and we always say minerality taste. So it's yeah, very lean, elegant. And less makes the wine uh, more round, uh, more big. Well, are there other climatic differences? Does it? Yeah, I think in the Wachau it would be a bit cooler, depending where you look in the Wachau, because you can say... There are two climatic zones which come together in our region. We get warm Pannonian climate from the east 
and cold continental climate from the north and from the west. And so you also have within the Wachau big differences concerning climate because when you look, for example, on flowering time and also ripening time, then the Leuben region, which is very in the east of the Wachau, could be between one and two weeks ahead compared to Spitz. And that could be an advantage, but also a disadvantage. So if you have, for example, uh, a very early year, then uh, it's better to be in Spitz because it's cooler there and you can harvest later. And it's always important to get good physiological ripeness. So in this case, it's better to harvest later. On the other side, if it's a later year with later uh, ripeness, then of course we have uh, in Unterleben the advantage because then you have better ripeness on an earlier time. So you find that certain years benefit you more in your area of the Wachau than they might other people in the Wachau? Yeah, that, that really depends on the year. But, you know, it's 50-50. So one year it's warmer and the next year it's colder. So it's the same chance to everybody. What's the history of the estate? How did it get started? My father took the estate from my grandfather in the early 70s. Uh, he was around 20 years old on this time. Right after he finished the wine growing school in uh, Krems. And, uh, you know, in this time, um, there was a bit of another winemaking philosophy. There was not that good qualities and wines was bottled more in liter and two liter bottles. And uh, in the beginning, also, my parents brought the grapes to cooperative. And uh, in the early 80s, uh, my parents also started to produce their own wines. They started also a kind of restaurant uh, on the winery in this time. It's called Heuriger. So that's a typical uh, local thing. So you are allowed there to just sell your self-produced wines and also cold foods. And so this was the beginning uh, to get contacts with private consumers. And uh, that worked quite well from the beginning on. And so um, from 86 on, my parents stopped bringing the grapes to the cooperative and produced uh, the whole production themselves. So in, and in this time, it was that were around four and a half hectares of wines. In what vineyards are the holdings at that time? At that time, they still had the Frauenweingarten, the Mühlpoint and the Leubenberg, those three. <laughs> And how has it developed over time? Have you added new vineyards? Yeah, you know, in, in these times, it was a bit easier to get uh, new vineyards. And so they take the chance and could add Liebenberg, Hollerin, Höheck, and of course Steinertal, which is now one of our most important vineyards. And you find it's difficult to buy vineyards in the Wachau now? Yeah, now it's, uh, it's nearly impossible. You can sometimes rent tiny pieces, uh, but it's normally nobody selling something. So how many hectares do you work now? We work now uh, 11 hectares. In terms of the vineyard holdings, is there anything that you own that's just owned by you? No. That's very, uh, very common for the Wachau region that, you know, we have these 11 hectares are divided to more than 50 parcels. So it's all very small and a lot of a lot of different parcels. It's really common for Wachau. Does that present challenges for the farming to have so many small parcels? Yeah, of course, that's more work, but that's 
typical for the region and we have to live with that. When you taste the wines from the same vineyards, from other producers, how would you characterize your own wines? What do you think of as the style of Alzinger? Our particular style, or we try to have or to achieve that, is to have always very elegant, focused, minerality-driven wines. Also, in years where it's warmer, where the wines are bigger, we also try to have a very elegant and focused style. And how would you talk about those different vineyards? What's the difference between the Steinertal, the Leubenberg, and the Liebenberg? That's the interesting thing. So the, the vineyards are, in most cases, very close together, but the wines are really different. And um, so that's also the, the reason why we, why we do most of our wines single vineyard-wise. So we normally produce per year between 14 and 16 different wines, but just two varieties, just Grüner Vetlina and Riesling. And uh, when you look, for example, on the Leubenberg, Leubenberg is one of the biggest and also one of the best single vineyards in the Wachau. And because of the size of approximately 25 hectares, you really find a lot of different conditions there. So the elevation starts at 210 meters and it's going up to 340, 350 meters on the one side. And on the other side, you, you also find a lot of different soil conditions. So the western and eastern part of the Leubenberg is very pure, very minerality, very poor soils. And in the medium section, in the medium third, there you find also loess, uh, which is not very common for terraces. This loess was blown in uh, 11,000 years ago. And in this area, for example, is mainly Grüner planted because you have a better um, water uh, situation there. Oh, so you need more water for yeah. Grüner. Grüner needs definitely more, more water and Riesling uh, can handle yeah, water stress a lot better uh, than Grüner And so, yeah, the wines from this medium section are often a bit more round, a bit more full-bodied. And compared to the western and eastern section, they are more elegant, more crisp, more lean. Additionally, Leubenberg is a completely south-facing vineyard. So it's also because of the sun, it's warmer there, compared, for example, to Steinatal. So you get a deeper wine. Yes. Bigger. Yes, bigger, yeah, in general. And Leubenberg is also one of, the, of those sites which uh, press a, really a stamp on the wine. So often uh, it doesn't really depend which producer is doing the wine. So Leuenberg is one of the, the easiest wines to guess or to, when you get it blind. What are some of the signatures of a Leuenberg wine? Yeah, it's, it's always on the one side you have these mineralities from the soil, but also you have this distinctive power. And um, that's the, the thing why it's really, or well, not really, but it's, it's easier to, um, to guess uh, than other vineyards. And what about some of the other vineyards like Liebenberg? Yeah, Liebenberg is far away from the estate. It's um, from the estate three kilometers in the west. It still belongs to our village, but it's right on the border to the next village, to Weissenkirchen. And because of this distance, uh, you are on the one side, you are cooler there, and you also have a different soil type. So the, the Leuben area, you find more gneiss-based soils, 
and on Limbergs, uh, mainly Amphibolit, and that makes a slightly different in the in the wine character. So when you look on Riesling, for example, the Rieslings from the direct Leuben area are more in the yeah, typical Riesling stone fruit direction. And on the Liebenberg, you are more in exotic kind and exotic fruits and also more in a fruit-driven Riesling type. And in Loem, you are more in the minerality style. You make about <clears throat> half Gruner and half Riesling in terms of your plantings. Yeah, approximately. What are the differences between Gruner and Riesling to grow besides the water? Yeah, both varieties are not that easy to handle. But uh, Riesling, of course, is, is a bit more flexible uh, concerning uh, the site where you plant uh, that. Gruner Vetlina is, um, is not so easy to handle because in former times, Gruner Vetlina was a variety uh, where not the quality was uh, important, it was the quantity was important when you look back 30, 40, 50 years and so that's also the reason why you don't have clones on Gruner Vetlina. So there's not a lot of clonal Gruner. No, there is, but you cannot use them today because they just do poor wines and yeah, no, not the quality which we need nowadays. So you do miss all selections. Yeah, it's all, all our replantings are selections from very old parts of our own vineyards. And um, then you are able to to have a good quality. So it's it's important to have not big grapes. We we need small grapes uh, with not too much Paris per grape, because then you have more aromas, more intense aromas, and that's the important thing. Well, what about riesling? Do you find clonal material for riesling? Yeah, there is clonal material for riesling. Uh, the main main thing comes from Germany because there is done a lot in former times, but we also use selection from our old vineyards. And do you find that certain years complement Gruner more and certain years complement <coughs> Riesling more? I think it's often 50-50. So it's often difficult uh, to say which, which variety is in advantage. Uh, but of course, there are some or certain years which is where you can say, okay, in this year, definitely the Riesling has the advantage or the Gruner Vetlina. So if you look back, for example, 2010, it's for me definitely a, a year of Gruner Wittliner. 2011, for example, for me definitely Riesling. And 12 and 13, it's on the same level for me. So what is it about a vintage that benefits one or the other, Riesling or Gruner? What would be a Gruner year and what would be a Riesling year? Uh, it's often uh, when it's a very late year then it's often uh, a Gruner Wettliner year because Gruner Wettliner uh, ripens a bit earlier compared to Riesling. And uh, so you get uh, better ripeness, better physiological ripeness on Gruner Wettliner in such years. And uh, on the other side, if it's a warmer year, then it's better for Riesling because Riesling keeps the acidity better. It keeps more fresh and elegant also in a in a warmer year. So it retains its acidity even though it's ripe and so it's more able to adapt to a warmer year. Yeah, it's the physiological ripeness which is the important thing because in a warmer year if you pick too early to get not too big wines 
then you could have problems with the physiological ripeness. And so you need long, you need to wait longer and then you have more powerful and more rounder wines and perhaps not so elegant. And on Riesling, you also can have elegant wines on these years. Have you found climate change to be happening in your region? <clears throat> are, there, are there warmer temperatures? Yeah, if you look back, for example, I know 10, 15 years, then there is a slightly change in, in harvesting time. So the harvesting is now a bit earlier than uh, in former times, but that's not that much. What we can see is that we have more yeah, dramatic rainfall or frost or something like that. So in former times you had, for example, rain within, I don't know, three, four days, slightly rain like it's ideal. And today you can have a thunderstorm which brings the same rain which you had in former times in three or four days, which is not really good uh, in terms of erosion and something like that. And you've had problems with flooding a couple of times. Yeah, but um, yeah, the flooding is also a problem. You, you know, when you are close to a river, then you have to live with that. Uh, but I think that's not, that don't happens because of the warming. But we had in, in the last 10 years, we had two really big floods. Yeah, 2002 and one in 2012. What were those like? You know, it's um, we are in the good situation that our our house is high enough to get to don't get it in the house. But uh, we had in both years one meter seventy in the cellar, so that's not that funny. But uh, yeah, you have to handle that. So what do you do? Do you, do you just pump it out, or are there... no? You you cannot. We we just uh, fill the the barrels and tanks with water that they don't start to swim. Because otherwise it will damage the, the cellar. And you have to wait. The water is going down and uh, the level of the Danube is normal again. Then you can pump it out. I've seen that they're building flood protections around the Danube. Yeah, in Unterleuben it's uh, built in moment. And then the whole Wachau villages are protected. But that's only for the, for the villages, so for the houses. Not for vineyards or something like that. So how has flooding affected the vineyard? When you have flooding, does that mean that there's a, a long-term change or does that mean that you have to handle it differently? Yeah, that really depends when the flooding takes place. So uh, when you compare, for example, uh, 2002 uh, and 2012, in 2002 we had it uh, in the half of August and the vineyards which are close to the Danube were covered totally. And also the grapes. So in, in this year, uh, we had no harvest in these areas. And in 2012, it was very early. So it was around flowering. And so in this year, the grapes were not affected. So your dad started in 86 bottling his own. What would you say have been the vintages since then? How would you look at those vintages? You came on in the mid to late 90s working with the wines. Yeah. But before that time and then up to now, what are some of the standout vintages for you? I think that the greatest vintage uh, was the first one. It's 86 is a fantastic, it's fantastic vintage. If you taste the wines now, then you think they are five, six years old. So that's really amazing. Then the next really good one was 90. Also a very classic, fine, elegant vintage. 93 was quite good, 97, 99 were the most shining 
vintages. But you know, it's sometimes vintages which are not rated that high in the year after production. For example, 95 was a difficult year. There was botrytis, not perfect weather. When you taste that wine today, they are amazing. It's often that vintages which are perhaps not the non-plus ultra are in when they age, they could be really fantastic. What do the wines take on as they age? When you open older bottles of yeah. Gruner from your estate or Riesling, what do you find to be the, the maturation signatures? Gruner, Vitlina and Riesling uh, age quite well, both varieties. And, you know, you have in the first years, you have more these fruity characters in both wines. And this character changes. It's going down and you get more the secondary aromas, the aromas from the soil, from the climate. And if this transformation has finished after four or five years, then there is no big change in the next 10, 15 years. But one difference between Grunewitlina and Riesling is that Grunewitlina is aging a bit more straight and more continuous. Riesling has, especially in the first years, more up and downs. And so you can open, for example, a bottle of Riesling and think, okay, that's not really great, and open the same wine uh, one month later, then it could be really great. But the older the wines get, the less you have this phenomenon. So they go through periods of closing fruit? Like, yes. Yeah. Is it something that you can predict, or is it something that varies from wine to wine? Um, that could vary us from wine to wines, but you you never know that in before, and you also have no uh, possibility to, to protect against that. So really, you just have to open a bottle and see where it's at. Yeah. If it seems closed and not showing well, you have to have the faith that ultimately the wine could show better than this. Yeah, of course. Do the vintages of the Wachau, where you are, tend to track with other nearby regions like the Kremstal? If it's a good vintage for you, is it a good vintage for them, or are there differences? To the close uh, wine-growing regions, so Kremstal, Kamptal, there are normally not really big differences. You have sometimes differences because, you know, you can have rainfall in the one region and no rainfall in the other. And if that happens in autumn, for example, you can have differences. But altogether, it's very similar. Of course, if you compare us to regions which are more far away, Burgenland or Steiermark or something like that, then you have, of course, big differences. And what about the vintages nearer to today? So you said that the 97 and the 99 were quite good. Yeah. But what about the last few years? What was 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 like? Yeah, we're quite lucky with the last vintages because when we start at 13, 13 is for us a really perfect vintage. So it, uh, I think it, it's one of the best vintages within the last 10, 15 years because of this uh, balance in the wines. We have a very, very good physiological ripeness, not too much alcohol, and a very good acidity structure. So the wines are really balanced, and I think you can keep them forever. 2012 was also very good. It was a bit warmer, so the wines are, compared to 13, a bit more powerful, a bit more round, but they also had a very good acidity structure. 2011 was a quite warm year. So from this year, I 
prefer the Rieslings, as we talked before, because the Riesling can handle the elegance and the freshness better. The Gruner Vetlinas are big in this year. And 2010 is the completely opposite. It was a very, 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 very late year. We had a very late flowering. It was really cold during the whole summer, which was resulting in uh, higher acid contents in the wines. But for Gruner Vetlina, it's also a nearly perfect year for me because of the high acid contents. Because Gruner Vetlina is a variety which tends to be lower in acidity. And so, you know, if you have enough acidity, then the wine is elegant, fresh. And so 2010 Vetlinas, I think, will also have a very, very long life. The Rieslings are now also quite good. In the youth, it was a bit more difficult because they are in the beginning, the, the acidity was a bit more aggressive. How long does it take usually to really approach your wines? Is there a rule of thumb to say, you know, you really should wait this many years before you open up an Alzinger? There is no, uh, no absolutely rule to that because it really depends on the people who are drinking the wines and how I like the wines. So if you prefer the fruit, the elegance, then it's probably better to open them more early. But me personally, I like them when they are a bit aged. So it's really up to the people. But we try to produce wines which can have a very long life. And so you should try that in every case. To age them, for example, I prefer them in the stadium a lot when they are between 7 and 10 years. But also there are examples with 15, 20 years when you taste them now, they are quite amazing. And what was the 2004 vintage like for you? 2004 was also a more cool vintage, which was not rated that high in the year after. But the wines are now also quite fantastic. Because they're awesome now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's why I, I asked that question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's also, as I told before, such of those years which people or also critics say, okay, not bad, but not amazing. And uh, now they are really great. So if you can give the wines a bit of time, uh, yeah, you can have really wonders. And what was 14 like to work? 14 uh, was a lot of work. Is because, that true? Yeah, because we had a very warm winter with low rainfall. So the flowering was early. And after flowering, we got the rain, which we needed. And during the, the summer till end of July, it looked all very good. And uh, in August and September, we got a lot of rainfall. And so the harvest was quite complicated, not easy. We had to harvest in each vineyard three, four times. But finally, with the qualities which we brought in, we are quite happy. But it was double amount of work for 50% of a normal harvest. How many bottles do you typically produce in a year? Typically, we do around 70,000. 14 was then significantly less. Uh, yeah, 14 was... I think 38,000 will be. You started at the winery in the 90s. What was your own progression like? I started wine growing school in uh, Klosterneuburg, which is 
close to Vienna when I was 14. So, you know, that was quite early. That's quite early, yeah. Was that your decision or your dad's yeah, decision? Yeah, no, it was always my decision. I was always free to decide what I want to do. And when I finished that school, it was clear for me that it was the right decision because the nicest thing on this job is you're that much outside in the nature and it's a very flexible job. So you do winemaking, you're in the vineyards, you're in the cellar, you talk with a lot of persons, you can travel a lot if you want. And so that's really quite nice. So when did you get out of school? I finished school in um, 98 and worked then in some wineries to get a bit more impression what, what other wineries are doing. First, I was at Yamek in, in Wachau. Oh, okay. So a traditional style producer. Yeah. A little different than your style. Yes, a little bit different. But, uh, you know, Josef Jamek was one of the most important persons for the Wachau. And it was quite nice. He was one of the first who made this dry wine style, the elegant wine style. And that was very important for the region in, in those times when he, he started with that. What did you learn from them? They gave to me um, how important it is to carry about the terraces to make the single vineyards to yeah the kind of specificity yeah 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 of the vineyard yes, yes. and then you worked with hans gunther schwartz for a bit yes i was one uh, harvesting season at müller Cartois with hans gunther schwartz which was really great because hans gunther is is a person who want to show you all so he don't have any secrets or something like that and so it was really great. Did it influence your own style in terms of winemaking? He showed me important things for him in the Riesling production. And of course, we tried that also in our estate in terms of keeping the wine on fine lease to get more uh, structure inside the wines. And we also tried that and we do it since this time also in our estate. I see. So that was an evolution at your own estate yeah. that you started to spend more time on the lees. Of course, yes. And what else has changed over time? You're using a little less sulfur now. Yeah, we are using less sulfur. We tried to have the wines also in the youth a bit more um, drinkable. And the most important thing is to have wines which uh, you can store very long and we worked on this because it does seem like they're deeper readier yeah. earlier now than when your dad was more doing the wine is that a fair thing to say yeah i think now you they are also in the youth more drinkable but you can also age them as good as in 15 years ago and what did your dad tell you about the winemaking when you started working with him we are still working together we all we make most important decisions we are we do still together and um, the good thing is if you have a dad working with you know when you have finished school then uh, you know the basics but yeah the most important thing is to have experience because you have that many different situations there is no year like the other and if you have a, a person who can ask, so what have you done in this year, which was possibly a bit similar to the year which we have now, that's very, very good and very important. Have you seen analogous vintages in the last, say, 
the late nineties? Are there vintages that are very clearly similar to previous vintages? And what would those be? Yeah, for example, the 13 vintage has a lot of similarities to 1990. Or in the other direction, uh, for example, 98, which was not so easy to handle, uh, had similarities to 2008. So there are quite a lot of similarities. When the grapes hit the cellar door, what happens next? How do you handle them in the I think it's, you know, when you bring in the grapes from the vineyard, you bring in 100% of quality. So the most important thing is to touch the grapes and the wine as less as possible. And I always say, if you work good, then you have 90% of the quality in the bottle. So in the cellar, you can just lose. So we work very gentle. When the grapes came in, they were crushed. Then we do uh, a skin contact, depending um, on the temperature and also on, on the grape material, up to 10-12 hours, really depending on the whole situation. But it varies with the year. Yeah, it varies within the year, between years, between varieties, that's very flexible. So what would make you do it longer? Would it be more ripeness? Or? Um, Yes, if you have a good physiological ripeness, you can do it longer. And also for Riesling, we do it longer compared to Gruner Vetliner. Because on, on Gruner Vetliner, you need to be careful to get not too much phenolics within the wine. And that can happen if you do too long skin contact. Is 13 a year where the Riesling saw longer skin contact? Yes. Yeah, Riesling, we do generally longer than Gruner Vetliner because you need more time on Riesling to get the aromas out of the skins compared to Gruner Vetliner. After the skin contact, what happens next? The grapes are pressed. Then we do a settling of the juice for around 12 hours. And uh, then it will be pumped within the fermentation tank which could be stainless steel or also big wooden casks. And yeah, then the fermentation takes place. And after fermentation, the wine is wrecked once, and then we do a really long fine lease contact. So how long does a fermentation typically take? That also depends, of course, but normally it's around between two and three weeks. That's fairly long, right? Yeah, it's... You know, especially Riesling has a slow fermentation normally, and so that's very normal. That's Gr normal for the region. Grunewitlina could also be a bit faster, but it's in average, it's from the bringing in the grapes to the uh, ready wine, two weeks is quite normal. Do you feel that your region is one that could possibly do red wines, and as you don't? So we in our winery just have white wines, just Grunewitlina and Riesling. There is some red wine, but I think it's not completely right region for red wine because it's it's too cold and uh, so you don't get the ripeness you need for the reds. There are some Pinots, they are quite okay, but yeah, you know, there are a lot better ones in, in other regions in Austria. And what about the farming? Has that changed over time since maybe you got there? Has there been differences to the farming of the vineyards? There are not really big changes to former times. Of course, you know a bit more today concerning uh, have health soil. 
So in terms of working with machines, something like that, uh, we try to as less as possible, but the main thing is the same. And this is an area that allows irrigation? Yes. What's your approach to irrigation? Yeah, we need the irrigation um, just or mainly on the terraced vineyards because the soils there, the primary rock soils, are not able to store a lot of water. And um, the wines need a basic uh, water supply because if you don't have this for a too long time, then you get a lot of phenolics within the wine. And so I would say we need it two, three years or also sometimes in not the whole year, just in certain months, for example, where it's quite hot or quite dry. And in certain vintages where you can, obviously in 14, you had to reduce yields quite a bit, but do you carry a little bit more fruit on the vines than some of your neighbors? Because it feels like the wines are, they have concentration, but they're not big and deep. They have a liveliness about them. Yeah, that's, that's very important for us to have not just big wines. We always want to have elegant, fine wines. And uh, you can handle that a bit with the crop, but you have to be very flexible because the most important thing to have not too much crop on the wines because then you have a thin wine which doesn't taste good. But if you handle that good and also you can do a lot with leaf management because, um, for example, if you have a very warm year, it's very important to cover the grapes and so you are not allowed to reduce too much uh, leaves in the grape uh, area. So you don't pull so many. Yes. And then you have more shadow. And because of this, you get more elegance, more more acidity. So in a way, the amount of leaf coverage is as important as the amount of yields. Yes. And has that a, a change for you with the changes in climate? Yeah, there is, of course, a change because the, the intensity of the sun is now in these years a lot more than 10-15 years ago. You see it if you pluck away too much uh, leaves and you have very high sun uh, influence then you can have sunburn on the grapes. And what about the other way? You said that you have to be careful with the Gruner Veltliner phenolics. Does that sometimes read as kind of a green flavor when you taste it or what has that taste? Yeah, it it tends more a bit in a in a bitter bitterness, not so the the green tannins. It's the green tannins is more when you are not ripe, if you don't have a good physiological ripeness, and the bitterness is when you have too much sun influence and, and too much phenolics. Oh, I see. So as it ripens, it gets more phenolics. Yeah, I see. Because that's usually the other way, right? Like normally, for a lot of grapes, I feel like the riper they get, the less phenolics they get. But it sounds like with Gruner, it's the other way. No, it's also this way, like Gruner Vitlina, if there is not too much sun. Oh, oh okay. So either way, you can have yeah. problems with phenolics yeah. with Gruner. So it's a tricky grape. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, not easy to handle grape. Plus, there's no good clones. So you. Yeah, but fine. you know, you don't need clones. If you have uh, material where you can uh, get your new uh, wines, if there is enough old vineyards where you can do the, the new plantings from, then it's quite okay. So you started seriously in 2001, so it's been about a decade and a half of time yeah. at the winery for yourself. What are your own goals and say the next 15 years, what is it that you'd like to achieve? On the one side, we have plans to rebuild some things on the winery to make 
work easier, to be more flexible. And um, on the wines, the most important thing is for us in the wines to show that the different characters from the different vineyards within the wine. And we really, we really want to work on that to make that more expressive and even better than it is. So how would you go about making those vineyards more expressive? What would it take? In the working during the year, you have a lot of different uh, decisions. And I think the most important thing is to react on the weather situations. And there you can bring out a lot. Oh, so kind of like the picking day yeah. is how you Yeah, determine. picking day, leaf management and things like that. And what's the market for the wines? Are they mostly sold in export, mostly sold in Austria? We sell around 60% in Austria and around 40% are exported. What are really strong markets for your wines or Austrian um, It's uh, around half of the export days in Europe. So in Europe, the most important countries are Germany, Belgium, Italy, Switzerland. And the part which is exported, the most important market are the United States. And uh, of course, of course, <laughs> no, it's we like that very much because people appreciate the wines a lot. So that's really great. And the rest is exported to a lot different countries. Sometimes just tiny quantities, but you know, it's we are on, on very good restaurant lists everywhere. And so that's that's more important than the quantity. So, for example, we have partners in uh, Japan, in New Zealand, in Australia, in Russia, Israel, Maldives. Yeah, I think that's it. What's it like working with Terry? Oh, Terry is a, yeah, is a great guy. So um, we work very long together with him i think it's now i'm not sure but 15 20 years i think no it's it's yeah it, i think it, it's going to 20 years and he's one of these persons who just live with the wine i think it's, it's really part of his life or it's not just part of his life it is his life and so it's great fun always to be with him and work with him together how is the market for Austrian wines evolved over time. Have you seen a different reception now than earlier in your career? Especially the, the Grüner Vitlina has made the way for the Austrian wines in the export. And of course, every beginning is slow. And there was quite a big evolution in the last 10-15 years. So it's I think now it's a quite fantastic story for the Austrian wine. And how are your wines seen within Austria? Do people think of you as one of the best producers or one of the better producers? Or is it more of a quiet pursuit that you do? Or? For us, it's important to let our wines speak. We are not the family who is, who is speaking a lot, who is yeah, telling a lot. That's, that's not we. So I, I don't know. That's, I'm not that good in talking. And so we let the wine speak. But I think... We belong to the quite good wineries in Austria. Leo Alzinger of Alzinger, thank you very much for being here today. Thank you for the invitation. Leo Alzinger Jr. of the Alzinger Winery in Austria's Wachau. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. 
Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.